Well, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2, if you would turn there. Uh, This is Peter's last testimony, his last words, which we've talked about. It's very similar to 2 Timothy's, Paul's last letter. In fact, as I think I mentioned before, you want a great study. Compare those two letters. The themes are, are very similar. The importance of the Word of God, but also the danger that's lurking in the church. We're going to look at Jude. Uh, anyone, anyone do a study of Jude in your life, a formal study of Jude? <laughs> no one. What Eye to eyes, fill in the gap. Yep. So we're going to look at Jude. It's a great book. It's, it's often neglected. And we'll look at that after there's a break in between. But first, we're wrapping up, of course, Second Peter. We, we noticed earlier on the characteristics of the false teachers. You've seen the slide a couple times, but just to reiterate, they're skeptical of prophecy. In particular, they're, they're denying any future judgment, and that's going to ring loud and clear in this text today. They applaud freedom. You're going to see that as well. Uh, truth is what you want it to be. <laughs> I saw a recent statistics on uh, 18 to 22-year-olds and whether they thought that uh, God's word is true, yes, but when it came to standards, it's whatever they believe is, feels best, uh, and that, that's where we are. They endorse a lifestyle that fulfills personal desires, self-serving, and that message is going to ring, it's going to be very attractive to their audience is what we're going to see here in the letter. So Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10, and we're going to look at the second part, verse uh, part of that, and it says, brazen and insolent. Your text may read bold. I'm using the Net Bible. And they are not afraid to insult the glorious ones. Literally, they're not afraid. They don't tremble at the idea of insulting glorious ones. If you have an NIV, if you have a a New American Standard, you don't have glorious ones. What do you have in the text? Celestial beings or angelic beings. It could be a reference to false teachers. In other words, the false teachers aren't or excuse me, of the saints or the apostles, but that doesn't seem to fit based on verse 11. It does appear to be angels. Scholars have debated whether they're the evil angels or good angels. I think the text, uh, we'll, we'll see this, but I think they're evil angels because it says in verse 11, yeah, even angels who are much more powerful than the false teachers do not bring, or even the glorious ones, a slander of judgment against them before the Lord. So even the good angels won't insult the bad angels. Uh, They allow the Lord to do that. Reminds me of Jude, a text we're going to get to, but Michael the archangel will not slander even Satan. He allows the Lord to deal with that. Uh, That's a whole nother. We'll talk more about that when we get to Jude because that has implications in our own theology. You know, I I know there's Christian groups that want to cast out Satan or... um, you know, bind Satan and, and, and so forth. And there's a fine line here. We'll talk about that when we get to Jude. It says, but these men, these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Watch that term. It's going to pop up a couple times. Do not understand whom they are insulting and consequently in their destruction, they will be destroyed. Suffering harm is the wages for their harmful ways. By considering it a pleasure to carouse in uh, broad daylight, they are stains and blemishes, indulging in their deceitful pleasures when they feast together with you. 
if you don't get the idea, Peter's hopping mad. <laughs> uh, he is just lamb blasting him, right? Their eyes full of adultery never stop sinning. Literally, their eyes are full of, ad- they're, se- they're predators. The sexual predators is what he's saying they are, right? They're un- they entice unstable people. They have trained their hearts for greed, these cursed children, by forsaking, and it's a willful decision, the right path, the way, literally, they have gone astray because they followed the way of Balaam, son of Basor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, yet was rebuked for his own transgression. A dumb donkey speaking with a human voice restrained the prophet's madness. These men are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm for whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved. For by speaking high-sounding but empty words, they are able to entice with fleshly desires, with debauchery, people who have just escaped from those reside in air. The fleshly desires, by the way, is the same term used of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah earlier in chapter 2. Although these false teachers promise such people freedom, they themselves are enslaved to immorality. For whatever person succumbs to, to that he is enslaved." For if they have escaped the filthy things of the world through the rich knowledge of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, they again get entangled in them and succumb to them. Their last state has become worse for them than their first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment that has been delivered to them. They are illustrious of this true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing herself wallows in the mire. (laughs) <laughs> oh, what a text for this morning, right? Here, oh, that's a real upper. Give me more coffee. Actually, there's some... <laughs> Rocco's, they didn't think he knew me. Uh, let's, let's unpack this because it, it is very significant what he's saying. Let's go back to verses 10, really uh, 10 and 11. There, when we, we see here these f- false teachers who seem to be, it says the text is they're slandering evil angels, I think is the implication here. How are they slandering? What, what does that mean? And scholars debate, there's two major views. One is that they, they disbelieve the existence of angels, and that's possible. They've, they're denying a future judgment. There could be a denying of any supernatural idea. I think more the idea is they're ridiculing the idea that, that there could be uh, that they could be enticed or brought uh, under the auspices of, of uh, these evil angels. In other words, the idea that we could be involved in some um, activity that's it's ungodly. Uh, there, there's just a poo-pooing of the supernatural, anything that that's lies in the future. And so you could see a, a wed of the two. They could be making fun of it because ultimately they don't believe but that appears to be the idea that's, that's driving this, that, ah, we don't, we don't see this as an issue. Um, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, there's teachers in our own land that would deny the idea that there's a future judgment. Ah, when you die, it's, you, you just don't exist. Um, the idea that there's the supernatural realm, etc. And Peter says, listen, even the angels won't go to this to this level that these false teachers are doing. And the text tells us, look at verse 12, 
These men, the false teachers, and he equates them with, again, Peter loves his word pictures, these irrational animals. He says they do this, they don't understand what they're doing. This is an interesting side note. Their ignorance does not let them off the hook. Did you catch that? That's very significant. Well, I didn't know. That won't wash at Judgment Day. Interesting, Mu highlights this in his commentary, that ignorance is often a willful refusal to know God's truth. One commentator aptly observes, these people speak great bombastic nonsense, but the end, they are no more well-informed than the beast and hence are proper objects of retribution. So they can't state... I don't know because they actually don't want to know and they have refused the message. Um, and, and that's the idea going on here. He says th they stand guilty. In fact, later we even see in verse 21, it had been better for them to never to have known the way of righteousness. So they aren't off the hook. Uh, there's, there's no such thing as an innocent heathen, I guess is what I'm trying to argue, right? There is none. Because in Romans 1, Paul says, just look at creation. You know there's something far greater than you, right? God has shown not only his handiwork, but he's also shown his wrath, according to Romans 1, Psalm 19. Yep. And, and why is that? Is it our, just our fallen nature, or is it the term? And, and what is worse, not going or going and then coming back? <laughs> we'll get to, Rock's asking what is worse. We'll get to that question later on, because that is an obvious one that needs to be raised as we study this text. Um, but why are the false teachers this way? Well, we're going to see it's, it's satisfying their own cravings. Um, I'd say it's three things. Uh, one, they've blinded their own eyes. Satan's blinded their eyes. And I think even the Lord says that he'll blind the eyes. You want sin? Go at it. That's the worst thing that could happen if God allows it. That's Let's look at the descriptor. He's going to first talk about these false teachers that he's already doing. He's going to describe them. Then he's going to show the implications or the disaster they have upon their listeners, those that sit under their teaching. He gives a laundry list of eight descriptors of the false teachers that you see starting in verse 13. These ones that are destined for destruction. And again, I, I highlight and note that it's repeated three times. They deny judgment, they're already under it, <laughs> and they're bound for it, just as an animal is ready to be raised to go to the butcher block. That's the whole implication there, equating them with these beasts, um, because the word for destroyed is used for butchering. <laughs> uh, they're like cows, except they're mad cows, kind of an idea, right? No he says here in the description, number one, we see that they take pleasure in carousing in broad daylight. Scripture talks about sin at night, but there seems to be a, a greater judgment or a, um, it taking it to the next level if it's done in, in broad daylight. Isaiah 5 says it's, not a bad, it's bad enough that you get drunk at night, but you wake up desiring strong drink to get drunk in the middle of the day. Shame on you. Isaiah 5 is one text. I mentioned that in your notes. And, and so first of all, we see there's this hedonistic idea. They're living for self, right? 
That's the danger of basing one's theology on how you feel or what you experience rather than the Word of God. Um, I was talking to my kids and my daughter goes, well, that's really a difficult text to follow. <laughs> so we don't have a choice, Sister Christian, right? This is what the text says. This is, uh, the, he is, either he's God or we're God. Uh, you can't have it both ways, Right? And so for them, there's a desire to fulfill self, and they do it in broad daylight. I can't think of a better illustration than Gay Pride Parade. The middle of the day, right? <laughs> really? It's bad enough you practice such devious activity, but you flaunt it and you parade it. And that's the idea here. It says they have stains, they are spotted, and they are blemished. That's an interesting thing because later in chapter 3, look at this, 3.14, Paul, or Peter uh, states something very significant. He says, dear friends, since you're waiting for these things, you have an understanding of the, uh, the end times and, and you're living accordingly. Watch what he says, strive to be found at peace without what? Spot or blemish. You're going to remain pure, unlike these guys who are stained, Right? And uh, the last time I had a huge stain on a shirt, it's only good for one thing, rag, right? It's useless. Um, and he says, you need, they, they've defiled themselves, but they've also polluted the gospel, which is even far worse um, by, by their lifestyle. He also says, you, you, you're polluted. And notice what he says here. He says, you're indulging, the blemish is indulging in their deceitful pleasures, they bring their evil, and he says, into the, the festival, the church. This is probably the um, banquets that the church would host after communion in the early church is what some people believe. You could argue it's the communion table itself. Certainly in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how there are individuals trying to turn it into a um, pagan cultic rite. And we know that with the pagan cults, there was sexual immorality that was involved in these feasts and drunkenness. And Paul says, no, you don't bring that to the communion table whatsoever. And Peter seems to be highlighting that as well, that you, you've polluted it. And he says, they're sexual predators. Their eyes are full. Every time they look at a woman, they're thinking, can I have her for a relationship? Um, Matthew 5 Christ talked about that, right? How you look at a woman already determines it. You may never do the deed, but you've already thought it. Yeah, Dick. Well, I don't know the two that you're referring to, and I want to be careful. There, there's two camps, isn't there, with Christian leaders? We've got those that the, the message is orthodox, but the wheel falls off the tricycle going down the hill. Uh, greed, uh, power, I don't know, uh, prestige, um, lust. Uh, yeah, I, I, greed is a sweeping uh, characteristic, as we've already seen, whether it's money or it's sex. Uh, the desire to have more. And so that, that's the danger. Uh, so I would see them as orthodox. They just, they, they're losing it. And you got another group over here. It's not just greed, but the message itself is polluted and it's not there. This is the camp Peter's addressing. Um, 
Verse 14, yes. Oh, I, verse 14, I don't have peace with them. In the NIV, it says to be found spotless, blameless. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, in chapter 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at verse 2, or chapter 2. They're never at peace. No, 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 because, in fact, we're going to see one of the, not only are they lustful and they're seducers uh, and greedy, which we've all talked about, they're, they're children of wrath, right? He says this, they're, they're already accused. Um, and so we see seducers, by the way, this idea was seducers. That term is used of fishing and hunting. They've, they've set the bait. The real danger here with these false teachers and Peter's perspective is that they're taking new converts and they're wooing them to the dark side. And you and I, we've been in church ministry long enough, right? We know guys that have accepted the Lord and the next thing you know, they've reading some book and they're way off field later. And Peter's very concerned that they're taking these, these men and women who aren't grounded in the word, they're not firmly established, and, and seeing them veer off. And of course, greedy, we've talked about. There's an interesting term there in verse 14. They've trained their hearts. That's the word we use, gymnasium. <laughs> They've practiced this. They have fine-tuned it. And they're very good at what they do. I've watched guys I went to seminary with go on to do PhD work in shipwreck because of a teacher they sat under. Now, you can say, well, yeah, parts that's their fault. I I agree. But uh, some of these guys and gals, they are really good. And Satan hasn't changed his tactics. He adds a lot of truth, and then there's some real crud thrown in. But it's so cleverly crafted. And, and, and that's the idea here is that these, these guys are dangerous. They're awful, they're, but they are accursed. They're like Ephesians 2, they're children under God's wrath. And in page 2, we also see one other, and that they are wonders from the way. He gives an illustration which is fantastic. Jezebel is kind of a code word, Sodom and Gomorrah for evil throughout Scripture. There's one other, and that's Balaam. Remember the story of Balaam? He was, for the pocketbook, for greed, he was willing as a prophet to curse Israel. And on the way to do so, uh, God intervenes and the donkey speaks. It's Mr. Ed in the Old Testament, right? (laughs) Can you imagine? A, a, A jackass has to correct the prophet uh, we could run with that. We won't, but you get the idea, right? And later, Balaam is also judged because when he finds out he can't curse, even though he tries uh, to curse Israel and he messes up, he, he still devises a plan and he entices the Israelite men to have sexual relationship with the Moabs. Sounds like our false teachers. It's interesting in the Mishnah, where's John Lieberman? You're going to love this. The code, Jewish codified law from the 200s. The Mishnah. Listen to this. In the tractate Avot, it says, <clears throat> there are traits of the disciples of Balaam. Now, listen to what it says. Disciples of Abraham of a generous spirit, they have a humble soul. But the disciples of Balaam have a grudging spirit. They are arrogant. They are proud. 
What's the difference between the disciples of Abraham, our father, and the disciples of Balaam? It says the disciples of Abraham, our father, enjoy the benefit of this world and the one to come. The disciples of Balaam will inherit Gehenna and go down to destruction. This is Jewish codified law written in 200 AD. And it's the same idea seen here. And what a great illustration that Peter utilizes because these false teachers are like Balaam. They led people astray, they polluted the truth, and they are destined for judgment. It's the same, that's what he's drawing the connections. It's so powerful here. Now, notice in verse 15, Peter is a great scholar of the Old Testament. He did not mess up when he said he's Balaam, the son of, and he says Basor. That is not the name mentioned in the Old Testament. Oops, is this an error? No, because Basor is a term also used for flesh. In other words, Balaam is the son of depravity, is what he's saying. That's, that's what he's playing off of here. Peter, it's very clever. Who love the wages of unrighteousness, seen in verse 15. Earlier in chapter 2, who was known as righteous? Noah, and three times used of, we looked at last week, who? Lot, Lot of all people, but they're seen as righteous because they persevered, not these guys. They are unrighteous. <laughs> what a contrast, right? And it says in verse 16, again, we see this donkey speaking in a human voice. How ironic the false teachers are like the beast. And yet it was a beast that warned the false or warned Balaam, don't do it. And he restrained. And the net Bible has madness here. That's probably not the best term. It's literally is irrational thinking. Sin will make you irrational. You've, you all have mentored or counseled or worked with people. I mean, the logic goes out the window when they want to justify sin, right? And they're doing gymnastics around the, the text. It's hilarious. Uh, met with a couple that are in sin, and they gave me all this rationale. My wife looks at me, and she goes, they've lost their mind. I said, I know. They're crazy. Um, this is what happens here, involved with sin, One's theology is no greater than their ethics, and their, their ethics will cloud all reasoning. And that's the issue here, right? And that's what we see going on. And so he says they're wanders from the truth just like Balaam. And again, Balaam becomes a code word throughout Scripture, even to Revelation, right? One of the churches is condemned because their members are following the way of Balaam. And Jezebel is also used. Questions on any of this? This is juicy stuff, right? Yes. So this all, it seems so obvious, right? It seems so blatant, uh, these infractions, right? Is this, right. Is this subtle in some way that I'm missing? Or is this like, well, clearly these, these people are, you know what I'm saying? Like, are these like sexual issues so obvious that you're like, you know, what is happening here? Or is this some subtlety that we're like missing? It's obvious to Peter, and it's obvious to us sitting on the outside. It's it's the the danger for the church in any era in any subculture group is it will take on often its culture. And I, I think the warning for us is 
we need to safeguard our orthodoxy, but we need to be careful that our church isn't looking like our culture. And great example is 1 Corinthians. In 5, there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom, and the church is not only condone or approving, they are applauding the liberties they have in Christ. We are, um, we're a welcoming church. We're a diverse church. And so, yeah, it's obvious to us reading this going, well, yeah, you, you got to be crazy. I see all these hands over here. Uh, I, I've got to, because I got a time, I got to move. But um, you can disagree, but I think when you're in the midst of it, it's not so obvious, I think, sometimes. Um, Andy, you're involved with family and church and our society. Do you want to... I'm Micah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at Andy. Do you want to comment? I mean, because I mean, you're in the trenches. You see it. And the tension of the church is we've got to be salt and light. We, we can't, we're going to wind up like the Amish and everyone's going to come see us thinking, oh, what an interesting little group. Uh, and, and I'm not down and playing the Amish, all right? There's some great things. But we need to be in the world, not a bunch of hermits on a cliff having our holy huddle. And that's the tension for the church. It is. It always has been and will continue to be. And the danger is, I, I think that's where it seems obvious here, but I, you know, I, I have a feeling there's going to be a generation after us that looks at us and go, well, man, didn't you see X, Y, and Z? Uh, you know, um, why didn't you do this and this? Well, let me move. Uh, and there's a lot here to, to chew and, and to mull over. These are the vices, but here's, here's, how they're doing it. And maybe this helps as well. Because in verse 17, he says, first of all, he gives another descriptor, actually three of them. They're waterless springs. Uh, and I'll tell you, if you're in Israel in the June and you go to a well and it doesn't produce water, you, 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 that's a real, that's a horrible thing to be. A waterless spring, mist driven by a storm. It's kind of the darkness that you can't see through. And he says they are in the depths of darkness. In fact, they're, they're reserved for judgment. This group doesn't have anything to offer. So the question is, then, then how can they do this? How can they accomplish and have such inroads in the church? And he gives three things. Number one, they speak very eloquently. They are slick. Man speaks with forked tongue, kind of an idea, right? They, they know how to talk. Notice it says... High-sounding but empty words. I love that earlier Peter says, we don't tell you concocted fables. And Paul says that the Lord selects the weak to confound the wise. And um, the, the, uh, this is the idea. And they are able to entice. Secondly, they appeal to sinful human desires. The message is very appealing 
Biggs says, grandiose sophistry is the hook, filthy lust the bait. <laughs> it appeals to the, the lowest common denominator. They've been, and, and with that comes the message, you've been liberated. We have freedoms. Well, this idea that you, you, know, you can't drink and smoke and go with those who do that, no, no, no. The false teachers offer freedom from moral constraint. And the irony is, those who practice freedom are actually enslaved to their own sin. Notice what the text tells us. Uh, some argue this is a proverb that Peter is quoting, but he says in verse 19, for whatever a person succumbs to, that he is enslaved to. Um, I think the greatest example is drugs, right? You, you got individuals who are addicted and bless their hearts. They, they've toyed with it and now it's owning them. But that's true with any sin. I remember Tony Evans. I attended Oak Cliff Bible for over a year when I lived in Dallas. And Tony used to say that hell will be all those cravings amplified and no way to fulfill it. It's an interesting thought on hell. I'm not sure what biblical text he had for that support, but it was great. It preached. Um, so it spoke eloquently. They appealed to sinful human desires, and they promised freedom. That three-pronged message has given them unbelievable inroads in the church. And Peter says, take heed, be on guard. And then he gives us verses 20 and 21, and these are problematic texts for those who hold more of a Calvinistic view. Um, and, and I will admit that. I do hold to a Calvinistic view here. What that means, I think, is this, that these false teachers have played the game. On the outside, they look like true converts. But at the end of the day, they are not. I mentioned in your notes, these false teachers demonstrate that they never belong to God. First John chapter 2, John says, there are false teachers in our camp that they, you thought they were among us, but actually never belonged to us. Hebrews 3, you will hold fast to these things if, in fact, you're a part of God's household. It's not what will be true, but what is already true. And so that's the argument I go, it's not clean. I know that, and I'm trying to take the whole counsel of God here, but it would seem to me that the false teachers have given the lip service. They may even perform miracles. I mean, they, they're looking really good, but they're really not, of, obviously, of God's household. He says, though, well, is there a question on that? Because that, that's problematic, and I know it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think Judas Iscariot would be an example. I, I think the parable of the seed and the sower, right? There's only one seed. I mean, there's ones that sprouted up, but they never produced fruit. So uh, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. If you're a part of the vine, you're going to produce fruit at some point, at some time, I would argue. Um, giving lip service to Jesus without fruit, I, I just don't see that. Uh, there's going to be fruit at some point at some time. I'm not saying there isn't carnality. I am not saying there aren't times when we, individuals will struggle with their salvation. But th this idea is there's a blatant... It, they fall into what we call apostasy, which means to fall away. They have left the faith. They knew what that was true. They want nothing to do with it now. 
And that raises two questions. One you've already raised earlier. Why was their last state worse than the present? Notice what it says in the text. It says in verse 20, their last state has become worse for them. Why? Well, I think Schreiner's correct in his commentary. It was worse because those who had experienced the Christian faith and then rejected it were unlikely to return to it again. Once as they've accepted it and then turned from it, it seems difficult. Yeah, Bill. Does it relate to the statement of Hebrews where uh, we, we think better of the human race when we crucify Christ again? Yeah, I, I think Hebrews 6 is playing into this. The warning passages, yeah, in Hebrews. Um, it, it raises another issue. In 21, why is it better that they had never known truth? Right? That's a little problematic. I mean, you first read that, it's like, ooh, that's really harsh, right? Verse 21, it had been better than never have known the way of righteousness, which I think is the gospel. And they turned their back from the holy commandment. I think that's the commandment of Christ, First uh, John 2 and others. Uh, Swindoll gives this great three-prong, and I put this in your notes, response at the bottom of page two. He says, the uninformed individual can be taught. But the, 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 the one who knew the truth and has turned from it, you're not going to teach them anything. Secondly, and I think Swindoll's right, the unlearned doesn't have this influence, but they do. And so this creates real problems. Those who do not possess far less influence than the learned. And so this makes it worse. And then third, those who are uninformed receive less punishment. Luke 12 is very clear. To whom much is given, much is going to be accounted for. And uh, it would have been far better had they not known anything. They know a lot now, and they're going to be held even more accountable. So I think on those three grounds, this is why it's better they had never known the truth. They've done unbelievable damage, and their judgment's even far greater. It'd just been better if you'd have been an ignorant fool in this whole mess than to know what you do know. And then he equates them, and you, you got to remember, dogs were not house pets in the first century among Jews. In fact, even today, you don't find a lot of people with dogs in Israel as pets. It's just, they're unclean. So are pigs. They're seen as the same. Uh, that's why when I get back from Israel, I usually eat a pound of bacon because <laughs> you won't find bacon in Israel. Well, there's a few places. Uh, I won't tell you where, but you can find them. But they're unclean. They're disgusting. And it's, that's their very nature. They'll return to their vomit. They're going to return to the mud. A dog is a dog and a pig is a pig and a pagan is a pagan is the implication, right? They're on that same level. You're not going to change their stripe. This is who they are. And um, the, the proverb's true. Well, whew, deep waters on these false teachers. What do you do with this? Let me give you three things to run with today. First of all, we need to guard our hearts so that the pleasures of the world do not become our dominating goal. Philippians 4, we need to learn to be content. You want to read a little book, a great little book? Uh, by a Puritan, Thomas Watson, it's The Art of Divine Contentment. <laughs> the Art of Divine Contentment by Watson. Contentment is not a word we know well in our culture at all. We just don't. Yeah. 
But yes, Philippians 4. And, I mean, this whole idea of learning to be content. I mean, he's in prison uh, at the time of his writing. Yeah, you're right. We don't see that with this group that are driven by greed, and it's a reminder for us. Secondly, we need to love and train the saints. <clears throat> yeah, we need to be busy sharing the gospel. Um, I was convicted this just even the last two days, and this fellow who just accepted Christ, thinking through, okay, what next steps can we be doing to train and equip him and prepare him? Um, Acts 20, you can look at these texts later, but Paul said, I didn't hold back on the purpose and will of God when I delivered it to the churches. I was keen on giving that to you. It's not uh, a coincidence that Peter in this epistle and Paul in his second letter to Timothy We'll talk about the importance of Scripture. It's vital. In fact, J.C. Ryle, down at the bottom of your notes, arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written Word of God. Neglect your Bible, and nothing that I know can prevent you from error. You are the man that is unlikely to come established in the truth. And this is the danger us sitting and looking out saying, yeah, it was so obvious, but sin is subtle. (laughs) And... Time away from the word, time away from fellowship, etc. We can set ourselves up really quickly for Satan to take a stronghold. And then here's the third. We have to be careful not to judge the externals. These false teachers, I mean, they were so eloquent. They probably won every prize in communication. I mean, they probably looked slick. They looked great. And I wrote in your notes, we need to be careful not to judge a Christian leader by his appearance or a conference by the... A slickness of the presentation. Moo is right. We need to judge ministries by the truth they present and by the spiritual reality seen in the lives of the ministers and people who sit under their ministries. That's key, right? What are the litmus tests? How does that fellow stack up? Things of the Lord and and what is who are his students? <laughs> I had guys that would looked at seminaries. Which seminary should I go to? Well. Look at the product, because they're going to leave their fingerprints on you. So do you want to be known as a graduate from X or Y? Look at their graduates. Look at the people they're producing. That will tell you much. Second Corinthians, Paul says, I find the power is made perfect in weakness, right? There's a lot of warnings here, but don't forget Lot and Noah, who God protected and persevered as they remained righteous, even in a sea of unrighteousness, right? That was plaguing the church here in the first century. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, uh, help us to guard our hearts. Help us to to see this world through your eyes. And, And may we recognize there's nothing wrong with the things of this world sex and the the confines of of a marriage, uh, even financial resources. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they can be so quickly abused and they can so quickly suck us in that they dominate and overtake our relationship with you. Help us to guard our hearts, Lord, and thank you for Peter. Thank you for these men. Guide him this week. In Jesus' name, amen.